You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. We have been uh, studying uh, justification by faith for several weeks now, and uh, that we are saved, declared righteous by God, uh, by our faith. Romans 3, 21 through 26, we uh, saw the instruction which Paul laid out for us on this doctrine. And then last week, verses 27 through 31, we saw the implications of it, how it caused us to humility uh, and to unity and to obedience to our Lord. And uh, now we come to chapter 4, and Paul gives an illustration of it, an illustration of this doctrine. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Let's pray together. Father, in these moments, um, we ask that you would please give us ears to hear. May we humble ourselves before you, your word, and allow you to speak to our hearts these life-giving truths. I pray that you would use me as your servant today. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease, and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's interesting here in the flow of this letter, if we were to to pick up chapter 3, verse 31 uh, from there, and then go immediately over to uh, chapter 5, verse 1. So in other words, if chapter 4 were just somehow accidentally or whatever torn out of your Bible, um, and you had chapter 3, 31, and you went to chapter 5, verse 1, the letter would read seamlessly. It would read uh, chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... But, but as we've pointed out several times, Paul has multiple purposes for writing this letter, uh, and he's, he's wanting uh, them to, to recruit them to be a missionary partner with him, and we'll see that toward the end. Uh, he's wanting to unify this church around the gospel, and so it's uh, really important that he explains it uh, clearly to them and, and answer any objections that might come up along the way. And, and there's always objections. Uh, to the gospel, questions. Paul knows that everywhere he goes, that there's been questions and objections, and he's in fact been maligned 
uh, many times for his teaching about the gospel by, by fellow believers. There's constant misunderstanding, misunderstandings and distortions of it. For example, in chapter 3, verse 8, we get a hint that some of this is already happening here uh, with, with the Romans. Chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says, And why not do evil that good may come? Notice, as some people slanderously charge us with saying. This is a misunderstanding that people had against Paul and his gospel preaching, uh, and they were using it as ammunition against him. And so Paul is anxious to clear these kinds of things up. One of the big objections, misunderstandings, is chapter 3, verse 21. We've talked about it a little bit, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. It was the big question in the Jewish believers' minds is what about the law, that a person may be justified or declared righteous or saved, all the same language, saved apart from obedience to the Old Testament law, that our efforts and our striving to do good things cannot save us. This really struck a nerve with the Jewish believers because it was at the kind of the core of their religion depended on the blessings of, of uh, keeping the Old Testament law and, and having received that. And Paul's teaching here that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, not by works, not by obedience to the law uh, to them, to the Jewish believers, it was as if, as if Paul was preaching a new gospel. And so Paul is answering these questions. He's been answering them already. At the end of chapter 3, he gave us some short answers, and, and we could have just moved on to chapter 5, but he stops here, and he takes time in chapter 4 to spend a little more time answering these questions. Those who are struggling, those who are criticizing, it's as if Paul is saying uh, to those of you who think that my gospel is somehow undoing or undermining the Old Testament, let me just take a few verses here and uh, address that issue and give an answer to you. And we should be really thankful for this uh, as believers that we have this chapter 4. I know it's not going to be nearly as exciting as chapter 3 or probably not as exciting as chapter 5. Or for some of you, you'd probably rather we'd be in a different book altogether. But Paul, these answers are really important for us as believers uh, in Christ. Uh, we, first, we see the importance of sound doctrine, of sound doctrine in these. You might be starting to have some thoughts. You know, I'm kind of tired of this justification by faith alone. You know, it's as if the pastor doesn't have anything else to say. Like the kid in the back seat on a long journey, are we there yet? Uh, are we ever going to get there? How much longer is it going to be? I see your hands in the back. All right. It's easy. You know, when we get into a part of the scripture like this, that, that's kind of a long a section on, on a particular topic. It's, it's sort of like we could say, well, why don't we just treat this all as one message? Like, surely you can preach one message on the entire chapter of four. Well, I might be able to, but we would be here for a long time today. Um, so we won't do that. But, but we need to recognize the importance of sound doctrine. It was Steve Lawson who said uh, that tall skyscrapers must rest on a deep foundation. And so all of Christian duty, he says, rests securely upon sound doctrine. All of our behavior flows from what we believe. It's so true. And Lawson goes on to remind us that, and this was interesting to me, I hadn't thought about it to this point, that there's not an imperative verb. An imperative verb is a command, do something. There's not a command 
given in Romans until chapter 6. It's all about theology and doctrine. We are not told to do anything up until this point. He's just telling us truth. But here, Paul is laying a doctrinal foundation for us for life application that is to follow. And it should remind us of something extremely important, that this is important to God. It's important to God that we have a solid foundation by which we we should carefully be laying and carefully be shoring up with doctrine, with the truth of God's Word, so that we will know how we should respond and live. It's important for sound doctrine. Secondly, this passage reminds us of the importance of the Scriptures to us in building this foundation. Sound doctrine is not built on your opinions or your thoughts, or whatever is convenient and cool and relevant in the day. It's built on the Word of God. How remarkable is it that when Paul is addressing their questions and their objections to what he is teaching, that he refers to them. Notice this question in verse 3, another question. What does the Scripture say? You know, there used to be a time when that was the go-to question in the Christian life for Christians today. It was the go-to question for those in the church looking for direction for the church. Instead of looking to what the winds of culture is telling us and how those forces are pushing in on us or what's popular or what, what works today, the default question was, what does the Scripture say? We've lost this church today, and we need to recover this. It ought to be the most important question that we should ask. It's a critical question. Notice here that really insightful what Paul says uh, when he asks that question. One, because Paul sees the entire Old Testament, that is, all 39 books, he sees them as one message. Notice he uses the word Scripture in the singular. What does the Scripture say? And notice also that Paul does not believe that this is a dead book that has somehow lost its relevance uh, and lost its instruction and authority. It is not a, a wagon that we need to unhitch from because it is old and outdated and so forth. What does Paul say? What does the Scripture say? Not what did it say, what has it said, as if though it's in the past, but what does it say now? Clearly, Paul does not believe this book to be an out-of-date book, but rather the living Word of God, a book in which the living voice of God continues to speak today. Where the Word speaks, God speaks. This was Paul's conviction And the fact that Paul appeals to it, thirdly, in this particular light and application, means that he believes that this is actually authoritative to our lives today. Why would he be pausing and saying, what does the Scripture say, if he did not believe that this is the authority upon which we base our answers to questions? It trumps, the Word of God trumps what is popular. It trumps how I feel about something. It, it, it trumps what my emotions are, what my, my reasoning can be about. The Scripture is the Word of God, and it has the final authority over my life, over everything that I believe, over everything that I do, over our church, over everything. 
Ferguson put it like this, when I read my Bible, I'm going to the mouth of God and listening to what He has to say. Church, we need to recover this question in our lives. What does the Scripture say? Whenever you're making a decision, whenever you're thinking about what you believe of your life, what, do the, what does the Scripture say? There's a third reason why this passage is important. It's important because of uh, the gospel clarity that it gives us. Namely, the hopelessness of our works to save us. And we have been talking about this, but it's amazing how we default back to this so quickly and forget it. And yet Paul reminds us over and over again of our need for the power of the gospel. We're reminded here that Abraham was not saved by his good works or good intentions, but by the same gospel that is being preached today. Abraham was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It saved Abraham. It will save us. It can save anybody, which is the glorious news of the gospel. You may have a family member who doesn't know, a co-worker, a friend, a neighbor who seems beyond the reach of God. You think there's no way ever God is going to be able to save that per person. But the truth of the gospel is no one is beyond his reach. No one. Again, Lawson puts it like this. Take heart that God delights in taking the one who is furthest away from him and bringing him near. It's so true. We see it over and over again in the Scriptures, don't we? We see it in Abraham, as we're going to talk about. We see it even in the Apostle Paul, who was so opposed to Christ and Christianity. And we've seen it in the men and women, boys and girls, that God has saved over the years. But we must understand this gospel clearly so we can believe it, and then so we can live it, and so we can share it. So chapter 4 is important for these reasons and, and more, as we are going to see. Let's talk about these verses, though, in verses 1 through 8. Three headings I want you to follow along with this morning. Remember, Paul is still talking about justification by faith. Notice first, it is illustrated by Abraham. It is illustrated by Abraham. Verse 1, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Remember, Paul has raised this question for us back in chapter 3, verse 27, when he talks about boasting. Uh, but he doesn't, he gave a short answer there, but he doesn't need a much longer answer really. But he gives this answer. He raises Abraham as an illustration. And Abraham is a perfect illustration uh, for who he is talking to here in Romans. Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. He was the father of faith. We sing that in Sunday school, right? Father Abraham. I'm not, no, I should not do that. Okay. This was, a, he was a source of pride for the Jewish people. They looked to him as the father of their, of their faith. Uh, in John chapter 8, Jesus was preaching to the, the religious folks there, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and uh, they responded to him uh, this way. They proudly responded to him. John 8, 39, they said, Abraham is our father. What do we need the gospel for? We've got Abraham. Abraham has showed us uh, the way. 
And, and that was what distinguished them. They didn't need this gospel uh, believing in Jesus. They had Abraham. So it's really a stroke of genius here that Paul essentially says, okay, let's talk about Abraham. Let's go to Abraham and talk about them. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. And what he's saying, in other words, what did Abraham find to be the case so far as his own flesh or his own actions, his own works, earning him salvation? Well, what, 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 anyone knows Abraham's story uh, knows that Abraham did not have good works that commended him before God. We've been studying Abraham, by the way, on Wednesday night. You're not going to believe this. We have a service on Wednesday night at 6 p.m. It's a shameless plug and commercial, but I do invite you. We've been studying Abraham on Wednesday nights, and those will know, and those of you who know the story, remember Abraham was not initially a faithful man. Uh, he, he, he was an idol worshiper. And, and even after answering the call of God, he struggled to, to tell the truth at times. He, he made some very poor decisions. There was nothing in Abraham that merited God's favor of him. Abraham was just like the rest of men. Chapter 3 of Romans 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what did his flesh, his own human ability gain him? Paul says, well, what does the Scripture say? He reminds them of Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which, quote, which he quotes here in verse 3. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. What caused God to declare Abraham righteous or to declare Abraham saved? What caused him to say? It was his faith, he says. Not his works, but his faith. In the Greek, when an author wants to emphasize something, they often put the most important word that they want to emphasize at the front of the sentence. Literally, the, the phrase is, believed uh, Abraham God. <laughs> his faith was what saved him. This is the way Jesus responded, by the way, to the Jews in John 8 that I mentioned a moment ago, John 8, 56. He said to them, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. In other words, Abraham may not have known everything, but Abraham knew the way of salvation. He was looking forward in faith to the one who would come, forward to Jesus. He rejoiced in that day, and he believed. And upon his faith, God credited righteousness to Abraham's account. He justified him. Abraham understood that his salvation was not based on anything that he had done, but on his faith on this one who would come, Jesus. Justification by faith is not a new doctrine, is it? This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 15. And I would tell you it goes back even before that because it is the same way that Adam was saved. It was the same way uh, that Eve was saved and Abel was saved and Enoch was, was saved and Noah and others. It is how anyone is saved. It is why no one can boast because we are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. It's illustrated here by Abraham. Not just illustrated, though. Notice, secondly, it's explained by Paul. Verse 4, Paul adds, Now to the one who works, 
His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The principle here in verse 4 is not hard to understand. If you work for an employer, you receive a wage uh, for your work. You do not receive a gift. You receive a wage. You earned that particular wage. A gift is a gift. A gift is a gift that is not given for your works. It is simply a gift that is given to you out of love. And so spiritually speaking, there's nothing in Genesis 15 about Abraham working his way to salvation. Paul explains it to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. He's reminding his Jewish audience that Abraham was an ungodly man, just like the rest of us, sinners by nature. But when Abraham was given that promise that through his seed, who, through his seed, the nations of the earth would be blessed. Though Abraham uh, was an old man and passed the time to have children, he believed God. He trusted in God. He trusted in that promise of that seed, his seed that would come, which eventually was Christ. And so God declared Abraham righteous in his sight. Now, we're introduced here to another important theological word. And we have looked at many of them over the past several weeks, faith, righteousness, redemption, propitiation, uh, and this may be another word for a t-shirt, I don't know, but it's the word imputation. <laughs> imputation. And it's simply the word translated here, count. Or Some of your verses, uh, versions may have credit or even render. I think that maybe the King James Version has render there. It's used five times in our text uh, and then several more times throughout the rest of the chapter. Verse 3, you see it there, it was counted to him. That's the word imputed. Verse 5, his faith is counted as righteousness. Uh, verse 6, God counts righteousness. Verse 8, the Lord will not count his sin. It's the word impute or the word count. It's a, a bookkeeping or accounting term that, that means to, to post to the account of or to credit to the account of. Of, to put something in the account. In the world of banking, one may take one asset and of one account and transfer it over to another account, impute it, credit it, render it over to another account. That's what the word counted or credited means. And so spiritually speaking here, Paul takes that term, God takes the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ in the moment of salvation, he takes the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and he imputes it to the one who has faith. He takes it from Christ's account and he puts it in your account when you believe. He says it, to the one who does not work but believes in him, that is God, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted. His faith is credited counted, imputed as righteousness. This is the only way a person can be saved. It is the only way a person can be saved. This righteousness of Christ is given to you not because your works earned it for you, but because of your faith in Jesus Christ who earned it for you. It's given to you. 
We, when we are told that Abraham believed God, it means that he understood that God's way of salvation was not by works. Just looking ahead, it is also not by circumcision, verses 9 through 12, we'll talk about next week. It is not by keeping the law, verses 13 and following. It is only by God imputing that righteousness, crediting the righteousness of His Son, enabling us to see it and to receive it by faith. That is an amazing doctrine, church. It is part of the glory of your salvation. We have not come today to worship because you and I, we've lived really well this week and God has somehow blessed us because of our good works, His salvation. That is not it at all. We have come to humble ourselves and to acknowledge that we have not done anything to earn this salvation. It is all of God. Amen? Amen? It's an amazing doctrine. To the one who does not work for His salvation or trust in his own good works, but rather believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Well, Paul there, he's illustrated it by Abraham. He's explained it to us. But then thirdly, notice it's confirmed by David. It's confirmed by David. This, again, is another stroke of genius by Paul because of the Jewish believers who looked up to David so much. This is the David, the one who authored many, uh, most of our, our psalms, a man after uh, the scriptures say a God, God's own heart, uh, the shepherd boy to whom all Israelite children were encouraged to look to uh, in their example, to follow as an example, Israel's greatest king. Uh, held in high standard by all Jews, and yet, let's be honest, who was also an adulterer and murderer. This man David. Paul says, what does David say about all of this? Verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, Abraham lived, importantly to note, Abraham lived before the law of Moses was given. And David was after the law of Moses was given. What did David think about his salvation? What did David do? What did he believe about his salvation? Did he think that he did something? Did David think it was because he obeyed the law of God and he somehow earned it? Not according to verse 7 and 8. David, they're citing, or Paul citing Psalm 32, David's words. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. What great words. David understood that he was justified by God's grace. He was accepted by God only because of the pardon of the sin in his life. His sins had been covered. It was not because of his good works. There's no evidence here that he believed it was because he tried really hard uh, and he, he did a lot of community service or whatever uh, that he could overcome his sin with religious activities. There's no evidence of that. David knew he, that the blessing of the acceptance and righteousness of God because his lawless deeds had been covered, forgiven. I notice the word again, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count 
his sin. Paul is saying that the only grounds on which the great King David, the adulterer and murderer, could possibly have stood before a holy and righteous God was because that God had counted the ungodly as justified. He counted him righteous. This is the heart of the gospel message. I don't think Paul was saying that David and Abraham saw everything clearly as Paul now sees it, as now you and I see it being on this side of the cross of Jesus and the resurrection. But what they did understand was that this was not by works. This was not by their obedience. It was not by their righteousness or by their efforts that they were saved, but it was only by God's grace through faith. I know you know this because we talked about it, but I want to remind you of it again today. It it seems to come up here. How can a perfectly righteous God just not count someone's sins against them? How can He do this and still be righteous? How can He just not count them? How can He do this math? We know that that doesn't mean that God just stops counting sin. He cannot and remain holy and righteous himself. He can't just overlook it, write it off on a piece of paper. The only way God cannot count our sins against us is because he has counted them against someone else, his son Jesus. This is the glory and splendor of the gospel. This is why we will be singing about this for 10,000 years and more. It is because the glory of the gospel is there are actually two imputations uh, that take place here. God counts or credits or imputes Jesus' righteousness to us, but at the same time, He counts or imputes the guilt of our sin. He transfers it on Jesus. He doesn't count our sins against us because He counted them against Jesus. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, the God who counts sin does not count my sin against me, but has counted my sin against His Son. He said, for our sake, He made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what the prophet Isaiah looked forward to in Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. How? How is any of that possible? He says it because the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is why David said, blessed Happy are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. How happy, how blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is great news, church. It ought to put smiles on every one of your sleepy faces today. This is the news of the precious gospel that we believe. It's what has brought us here today, this truth, this reality of what God has done for us. 
How happy is the man, the woman, the boy, and the girl. We think this is too good to be true. It is not too good to be true if you will trust in Christ. God promises this to those who believe. He said through the prophet Jeremiah 31, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. He said to the psalmist, David did, Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. These are wonderful promises. They are not promises high in the sky, by and by, so to speak, that have no relevance. They are supported by the even greater truth that God has dealt with our sins fully and finally at the cross of Jesus Christ. He dealt with them. Our sins have been punished there. That's why they can be removed. That's why they can be covered. That's why they don't have to be counted against us anymore. That's why they are remembered by God no more. Remember, this is the longer answer to why no one can boast in their salvation. Because God has done this. Real faith always says... To God be the glory, great things He has done. Real faith always says, Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That thought is staggering, church. I remember this, I mentioned earlier, this is a foretaste of our time in heaven, our worship together. One day we're going to stand before an infinitely holy God whose righteousness will shine brighter than the sun. And we will stand before Him and we will remember, we will remember all the things that we have done We will remember the thoughts that we had that we shouldn't have. We will remember all of the ways that we have been unfaithful, that we have not made good on the opportunities that have been given to us. We've squandered them. And yet, by faith in Jesus, we will stand before this infinitely holy God, as the song says, dressed in His righteousness alone faultless to stand before the throne. What a gospel, church. What a Savior. What joy we should have in light of this truth. Is it your song? Is it your testimony? Is this... Your trust, is it in Christ that He paid it all for you? Why not trust Him today? Call on Him today and be saved. Father, thank You again for this glorious, beautiful gospel. May it never uh, grow.
commonplace to us. May we be amazed by it. And may it cause us, Lord, to want to live for you and please you in everything. For those who have never heard this gospel, or at least have never heard it in maybe the way that your spirit is speaking today, may today be the day of salvation. A new world, a new faith in Jesus Christ, a new creation in Christ as they trust in him and turn from their sins. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.